Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. <laughs> nice, nice. You uh you have yet to fail me on one of these, so I'm gonna I'm gonna buy into this. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose to buy into this. Alright, alright. Uh oh, I don't know, what was that? A monster? Robot? Alien? Whatever. Um <laughs> it was a death gurgle. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. Hey, hey, everyone. This week, we're going to, you know, us being a comic book podcast, we try to have a lot of different variety in here. We try to talk about all sorts of different things. So this week, we're going to talk about a Kickstarter comic that we both backed in our in our aptly titled ball kicked kickstarters kicked ball kick in the balls kickstarters kick kick the balls kickstarters do any of those sound good do any of those sound like they could be a, a an, an appropriate appropriate name for a for a sequence a sequence of events yes a sequence <laughs> of podcasts probably not you don't think we we can make a title card for that and give it an intro and like uh, present this uh, kick kick in the balls? I'm trying to integrate kick into it somehow. Kick 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 in the testicles. Kickstarters. Kick, <laughs> kick. All right. <laughs> Testicle kick kickstarters. <laughs> I'm just reaching here. I'm reaching. Yeah, that's uh quite a reach. Yeah, yeah. You might even call it a reach around. Anyways. Oof. anyways yes this week we are going to talk about a kickstarter comic we both backed and oddly enough i think this might have been the very first kickstarter we both backed it was i want to say right around what were we gonna say it it wasn't the very first kickstarter i backed but it was definitely early on in in the pandemic this was 2020 from what i remember Right, right. Well, okay. It was definitely the first Kickstarter I backed. And I think it was a situation where due to circumstances being what they were with comic book stores closing down and production shutting down, um, it was just a combination of this being presented to us as something different and something new. And it was also a comic book and we be fiends here. So when I couldn't get my regular comics, I had to just go out into the dirty world, into the dark internet to find my my fix. Kickstarter so, is the dark internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a sheltered life you've lived. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did you know that you can look at pictures of girls on the internet? <laughs> and and guess what? These girls. They're naked. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> uh, that was that was the longest ten hours I spent on I've ever spent online. <laughs> anyways, <laughs> anyways, yeah. Tell the good people what what comic did we kickstart? Did we support on Kickstarter? Okay, the comic that we are going to be discussing today is Maddie. Once Upon a Time in the Future, 
written by Duncan Jones and Alex DeCampi. This comic has multiple artists, so I'm going to just go through the list here. Art is by Dylan Teague, Glenn Fabry, Duncan Figredo, Lawrence, Eduardo Ocaña, Andre Arujo, Simon Beasley, Rosemary Valero O'Connell, Tanchi Zonich, and Scholar Patridge, Pia Guerra, James Stokoe, R.M. Guerra, Chris Weston, Rufus Daglo, Annie Wu, David Lopez, and Christian Ward. Those are the line artists. The colorists on the book are Adam Brown, Jacob Phillips, Raul Arnaiz, Chris O'Halloran, Kelly Fitzpatrick, Matt Wilson, Julia Brusco, Sergey Nazarov, Young Kim, Sophie Dodgson, and Marissa Luis. And the covers for the book are by Duncan Figredo and Jacob Phillips, with the hardcover uh, cover illustration by Yuko Shimizu. So mm. that's a lot of artists, and we'll we'll talk about that as we discuss the book. The book itself is published by Z2 Comics. It uh, came out in 2020. The indicia in the book says it was October 2020. So I don't recall exactly when I received this in the mail, but it must have been in 2020 or maybe early 2021. I, I don't remember exactly. I believe this comic is also available, uh, at least the paperback edition of it should be available from your standard comic book retailers so it's not like this is a kickstarter exclusive or anything mm -hmm. but yeah it's a pretty heavy book uh we got the hardcovers and yeah i think that's probably the best way to read it because it's oversized and it's really a showcase for the different artists and you want to have the bigger dimensions of the paper in order to fully appreciate all the artwork. I'd say so. I'd say so. I mean, the way that you're presenting it, I guess it's fair to say that the thing about the book that caught both of our attention was just the wealth of talent that worked on it. So just hearing all these different artists and um, me personally, I, I had seen some of Duncan Jones's other works in film. So again, back to what I was saying earlier, it, it was just a position. I was just in a position where I didn't have comics. I didn't really have access to comics at the time, um, even though I was probably sitting on just a tombs full of <laughs> comics that I had bought over the years anyways. So I guess I could have read those, but I couldn't get new comics, okay? <laughs> Look, you weren't the Jedi that you could have been. You wanted more, and you knew you shouldn't have. Um, I hate sand. It's coarse, <laughs> and it's rough, and it gets everywhere. <laughs> Star Wars, everybody. Star Wars. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so... Um, you know, not having access to comics and just seeing that this nice deluxe edition hardcover was coming out with all of these, you know, just remarkably talented people behind it. It, it was it was enough to entice me to back it as the very first Kickstarter that I ever backed. So, 
Mm. Yeah. Uh, would Would you say that that applies to you as well? I mean, not necessarily it being the first Kickstarter you backed, but just in terms of what its draw or appeal was to you? Yeah, definitely the roster of artists because I think because so many of the artists who worked on this were people that I recognized, I knew that I would at least like how it looked. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I wasn't familiar with Duncan Jones. I've never seen any of his movies. And, and to be honest, I didn't even, I wasn't even familiar with his name, but I did know Alex DeCampi's work and uh, I've read a few of her comics, not a whole ton, but everything of hers that I have read, I thought was pretty good. So I thought that was pretty solid beginning with, you know, a solid writer and a bunch of great artists. How how could it go wrong? So figured it'd be good to pick it up and or good to back it. And we've had it for a while, but I guess it must have just been sitting on our bookshelves for all this time until we decided, hey, we should just podcast about it. That'll motivate us to to read yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, for a little bit of behind the scenes context, we... I don't know, we, we usually have a pretty good amount of topics to discuss, but I think this year, Drew in particular has made it a point to place an emphasis on things that we have in both of our libraries that we have yet to get to or to read, and just to make it a point to read them. And like you said, what better way to do that than to make it a podcast episode? Yeah. And as yeah. you were saying, you were sitting within a tombstone's worth of comics. And I mean, that's pretty much the case for me also. It would mm -hmm. kind of be disappointing if we ended up becoming corpses in our tombstones full of comics without reading all of our comics while we had a chance. Exactly, exactly. I One of my great realizations was that I had all these comics and I wasn't getting any younger. And there was a chance that anything can happen at any moment and I could I could end up leaving the mortal coil without having read everything that I own. And, you know, out of all the things that could make me sad about death, that was one of them. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly a lot more things that I could regret about my life that I've wasted. But <laughs> not reading all you know, the comics is definitely in the top five. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like it's the one thing that I probably have the most amount of control over. So yeah, I might as well do something about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. In regards to J Duncan Jones, uh, I had seen one of his movies. Actually, I'd seen two of his movies before I saw. I remember watching Moon and that one starred. Um, Oh shoot! What's his name? He uh, he was Justin Hammer in Iron Man two. Uh, I don't remember the name, but uh, I'm Sam sure Rockwell. Oh, okay, yeah, there you go. Sam Rockwell. I recognize. It, it starred Sam Rockwell, and it was a, you know, kind of a small release. But I I remember being pretty impressed by it at the time. I don't know if I was necessarily in that place where I was. I watched this film, and in my mind, I thought this guy is going to be the next Kubrick or something like that. Right. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed what he did enough that it stuck with me. His name stuck with me. Um, I think the next big thing he did was source code, which was more of a 
I want to say it was more of a commercial success and more just um, like it just had a broader appeal to 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 general audiences. Mm. Um, I think it did relatively well, but I don't think I don't remember if it. Well, this many years out, I think it's fair to say that it it wasn't something that necessarily blew him up, but you know it allowed him to continue to keep working. I think the biggest movie that he did that I recognize or that most people might recognize would be I believe he did he directed the Warcraft movie Warcraft yeah I think huh yeah did not know he directed that yeah and I think most people have forgotten that movie most people <laughs> don't really think about that movie but it's it's probably the the movie with the largest name recognition and if i had to be honest it, it probably isn't you know in the top well i guess his the amount of work he's done is so limited it might be in the top like three uh, uh things that he's done <laughs> but no if I I had mean, perfect... you've already mentioned those two movies that you did see and he did maddie so it's definitely not in the top three okay 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 so there we go <laughs> it could be in the top five then <laughs> <laughs> But the thing about it is, um, yeah, if I had to be honest, it was probably something that he just took as a paycheck as opposed to some sort of passion project. But hey, directors are people. They got to eat. They got to work. So I don't begrudge him that. What if he's a really big fan of Warcraft? There's a possibility of that, too. So maybe yeah. it was a passion project for him. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not absolutely discounting that as a possibility. Mm-hmm. but there are a lot of things that could be possible anything <laughs> is possible yeah that's like true. kevin garnett said anything <laughs> <laughs> uh, so right. having seen a couple of duncan jones's movies do you think that you can identify any pet themes or other hallmarks of his storytelling i mean I, i'll just put it in brief right now and maybe we can discuss it in greater detail when we discuss the comic but mm-hmm. i think the simplest way for me to put it is i guess he strikes me as as someone who believes in like sincerity and hmm. uh yeah i think i think in an age where it, if we're to believe that we've been in this you know second golden age of television or cinema or whatever where you know uh the the high points of it are well i was gonna say like breaking bad was supposed to be the uh you know the the dawn of that second golden age but breaking bad's been a while now but i think one of the signifying things about that particular age of television and movies is that it was kind of the period where the anti-hero was this really was this really prevalent character archetype and we were seeing a lot of stories that really revolved around good people or people with good motivations who are placed in impossible situations and who end up having to become darker in order to cope with whatever the circumstances of their lives may be right yeah. so i i mean i think 
again, going back to the idea of Walter White in Breaking Bad or something like that, where after that came out, we just saw a slew of other shows that kind of mirrored that formula. We had like Ozarks and I think Americans came out and, um, you know, just any number of shows where you just saw uh, the main character just kind of learning to cope with their situation and ultimately becoming a badass. So um, I think the thing about culture is things tend to come in waves and for every reaction there, or for every action, there is a reaction in art. We, we, we constantly see that in art, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of what uh, demarks these new periods of time where new art styles tend to flourish. And often the case is they flourish because they are responding to uh, certain art styles becoming stagnant and old. Um, but I do think, I mean, granted, Duncan Jones has been around for a while now, but I do think that he's, you could say that his, what he puts on screen is something that, if I had to guess, is a response to that really grim and gritty and dark storytelling and just him trying to tell a story where people are sincere and good and genuine. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So would you say that he tends to reject the cynicism that permeates a lot of our popular entertainment nowadays? If I had to guess, I think he would. I think he he does, um, which is interesting because this might again this might be me grasping at straws. But one of the things about Duncan Jones is his dad is David Bowie. And oh shoot, really? Yeah, I did not yeah. know that. His dad is David Bowie, uh, so I think Duncan Jones is what he goes by. But I think his real name is like zoe so his dad named him zoe bowie (laughs) wow okay yeah yeah but i think a lot of people look at again this might be me reaching but if you look at david bowie's art it's kind of extreme and it's kind of out there it's maybe a little pretentious like you know he's he's pretty iconic and wild and i don't Part of me wonders if Duncan Jones made it a point to reject all all that and kind of just go for something more straightforward in terms of his his in terms of how he wanted to approach art, you know? Mm. Because fascinating theory, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd have to watch more interviews with him, but yeah. <laughs> that is interesting. I did not realize he was the son of David Bowie. Yeah. Let me. I probably uh, should have looked up his bio on Wikipedia before we started recording. Yeah, <laughs> you have educated yeah. me. You have brought um, enlightenment to my life. Yeah, I'm looking at his uh, Wikipedia right now. His father was David Bowie, and his mother was Angie Bowie. So mm. he's totally their kid. Mm-hmm. I did not make that up in some sort of drug-induced fever dream. <laughs> 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 um. All right. What about uh, well, Alex okay. DeCampi? Are you familiar with her work at all? Uh, 
Not so. Well, actually, that's not true. I her name is something that I'm familiar with, and I'm sure that I've seen her art before, but I couldn't name it off the top of my head. I'm I have her Wikipedia page in front of me right now, so I'm looking through it. Uh, Archie versus Predator Two. She also wrote the first Archie versus Predator, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, she did. So. That could be fun. I never read those, but I never read the second one, but I read the original and that was pretty entertaining. It was yeah, pretty ridiculous. You know, it's the concept of the Archie gang crossing paths with the Predator <laughs> from the Fox yeah. movies. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it, it's drawn in that cartoony style, but there's in the still Archie style. Yeah, it's drawn in that cartoony Archie style, but it's still pretty violent and gruesome and you have the predator. You know what he does? He rips people's skulls and spinal cords out of their bodies and keeps them as trophies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think what I was going to say about that is it's a concept that's so ridiculous and so bizarre that it wouldn't surprise me if someone was approached with that and they just really leaned into the archiness of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. which is trying to make a story about a predator wholesome, which it's a pretty interesting exercise in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, I read it a long time ago, and I remember a few things about it, but not. I don't remember exactly how it ended, but I think you are correct that it did try to do something kind of cute and amusing with the Predator. There's still definitely a lot of violence, and I remember it being pretty bloody and various characters getting killed. But yeah. it's, but all, I imagine when they it's died, all very tongue-in-cheek. Like, yeah, I imagine when they died... Like you still saw the viscera and the spines and stuff, but I imagine they had like big X's over their eyes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to make it cute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I've read only a handful of her comics. Um, for some reason, there's a, a comic of hers that just totally slips my mind. It was she did a two-parter for some uh, Dark Horse anthology that was like a pulp thriller anthology I, I can't remember what it's called but the ones that she did that i do remember their names she did smoke with igor cordy but i read that one like probably 12 or 15 years ago and that was from the library so i don't even own my own copy of it mm-hmm. it's something like the only thing i really remember about that one is that at the time i remember it got pretty good critical respect and when I read it, I did think it was good. Uh, it was something that I think might have required multiple readings for me to fully grasp it. Mm. But because I don't own it, I never really had a chance to reread it. But it so is something that... you never really got the full impact of it. For all we know, it's still out there and there's still a part of you that's longing and missing because you just never truly understood it. The way it was meant to be understood yeah and such are the tragedies of life man those are the vicissitudes <laughs> of life that's every day is just a we're just adding to the laundry list of regrets and mistakes <laughs> and failures of our lives i like that you use the word wait what was that vicissitude i've never heard that word i i learned that from jungle book <laughs> <laughs> okay okay <laughs> I've never heard that word before, but I like it. (laughs) You got to watch more cartoons. 
Wait, you learned that from the Jungle Book cartoon? Not the Rudyard Kipling semi-racist (laughs) book? That was from the Disney movie. (laughs) Really? Dude. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now it is you who have educated I. (laughs) (laughs) She also, Alex DeCampi also did, she wrote No Mercy with art by Carlos Speed McNeil. And that one was an image book. I think it's two volumes. I don't remember if it got canceled or if they just finished the story. But I've only, I have both volumes. I found volume two for cheap recently. I was able to find volume one uh, a little bit before the pandemic began. And I remember during that lockdown period, that was one of the things I did read. And I remember that being pretty enjoyable. That was a story about these teenagers who got into a a bus crash during a trip and they got stranded in the wilderness without really any adults and had to kind of fend for themselves but being in that kind of situation it was very similar to something like lord of the flies where you see the nastiness of various kids come out and the the selfishness and things like that it was a a very fascinating survival story. So I, I do need to go back to it and reread the first volume and read the rest of it at some point. But that mm-hmm. was a good one. And mm-hmm. yeah, the aforementioned Archie versus Predator with art by Fernando Ruiz. We just mentioned that one. The other thing in her bibliography that stands out after Maddie, or maybe it was like close to the same time as around uh, the time that the Kickstarter for Maddie was going on, but or shortly after, she did another Kickstarter for an anthology comic called True War Stories. And that mm-hmm. one was another one I did back, and I got the hardcover for that. I read that one a couple years ago. It's an anthology of stories written by actual veterans about oh. the various wars that they've been in. So it's like stuff has as long back as Vietnam. I'm not sure if there were if there was anything older than that, but definitely from Vietnam up through the present day, present day wars. So you, you get to hear like real stories from veterans and some of the stories are uh very intense stories about actual battles that uh these people survived. Some of the stories are just kind of amusing slice of life stories about a boring day in the barracks or whatever, you know, like just a big variety of types of stories. Some of the stories were about their experiences after they came back from the war that they were in. But out of, uh, I think most of those stories were really good. And that's something that I would highly recommend true war stories. She edited that one. And I think she did write one story in there. Um, or at least assisted with with writing one of the stories. But yeah, she definitely did a good job with that Kickstarter, and I like that one quite a bit. Nice, nice. Yeah, I I should really read more of her comics, seeing as how we are a comic book podcast that tries to stay on top of it. But, you know, just for the sake of educating myself and enlightening myself, I should read more of her stuff. Yeah, she's been around for quite a while because Smoke was probably close to 20 years old now, I think. Or maybe a little bit less than 20, but 
That came out kind of in the wake of 2005. Okay, so it's 18 years old. Yeah, I remember it came out kind of in the wake of Igor Cordy's infamy because there was a period of time when he was that dude was getting a lot of hate because he drew new X-Men and and people on the internet at the time really didn't like his art Mm. for some reason. And he ended up going away from Marvel and came back with smoke and blew us all away. So, mm. yeah. So she's, Alex DeCampi's definitely been in the industry for quite a while, but I guess she's not as prolific or maybe she's just, she's just not quite a big name. Yeah. But at least every so often we'll see her name on some kind of comic and, you know, she's not, she hasn't been defeated by comics or anything. Right, right. And from the looks of it, it does look like she does a lot of stuff for, like, film. I, like, she's got a videography, so I don't know if it's, like, movies or TV. I'm sure it's, like, some mix of all those things. But, mm-hmm. you know, she stays busy. I, I, I don't think she's someone who exclusively does comics or necessarily even exclusively needs comics. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the real talented people are people who they're doing their own thing and we're we're fine with that. Like good for them. Mm-hmm. 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 Do you have any thoughts on any of the artists who worked on the book? Uh one of the names that jumped out at me that sold me on backing this Kickstarter was definitely James Stokoe. It was around, I don't know if it was around the time that this came out, where I want to say it was around the time that the Kickstarter came out. I had just read a couple of Stokoe's books. So I read this four issue miniseries he did on aliens, and I had read this uh, Godzilla story he, he did called The Half Century War. And I just was really high on him at that moment so when i found out he did some work in maori i was like yeah man i i think i'm just gonna back it just to see what he did what what Mm. he contributed Mm -hmm. um yeah i'm i'm thinking trying to think who else uh because there were a lot of people that worked on it so i i can't really it's like 18 different artists yeah but like most of them are people I'm, i'm familiar with from other comics I've read, some of them um, I might just recognize their name uh, mm-hmm. without really being able to point to a specific work. But there are some guys or some artists here, I shouldn't just say guys, but some artists here who have a, a history with Vertigo stuff, you know, Glenn Fabry, Duncan Figredo, yeah, uh, yeah. Pia Guerra, who, who did Why the Last Man, R.M. Guerra, who did Scalped. So yeah, it's a pretty good mix of artists from yeah. the North American industry as well as the European industry. Like there's a lot of British artists, which makes sense because I think Duncan Jones is British. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, I'd definitely say that the mode of the artwork in general here is very much in the American, North American and uh, European style. Yeah. I will say that the one other big name that caught my attention was Yuko Shizumi. And she didn't really do anything 
in the interiors, but the fact that she did the covers and we saw what the covers were like, that that also did quite a bit to encourage me to buy this book. Yeah. Yeah, she's a great artist. Fantastic. Definitely. Shall we dive into the book discussion? Let's do it. Let's All right. do it. I'll read a back cover summary to provide a general synopsis of Maddie. How's that? I'm good with it. Go with it. Okay. Here's what it says on the back of the hardcover edition. Maddie Preston, a veteran of Britain's elite special operations J-Squad unit, is burnt out and up to her eyeballs in debt. She and the rest of her team have been retired from the military and are now trapped, having to pay to maintain the legacy of technology the army put into their bodies. They're working as mercenaries, selling their unique ability to be remote-controlled in corporate wars across Europe, but the missions are taking their toll. The specialists puppeteering them don't seem to care that Maddie and her team are human beings in harm's way, and she's had enough. Maddie takes an off-the-books job that should finally emancipate her and her sister. But when her target turns out to be a kid, she suddenly blacks out and you'll see. <laughs> Maddie, once upon a time in the future, is a globe-spanning action adventure in a world of drones, militarized multinationals, and bad options. But mostly, it's about family. So you heard that is here. the back cover blurb of Maddie. Mm-hmm. It's like a Fast and the Furious movie. It's about family. Family. <laughs> How's my Vin Diesel? <laughs> Ain't nothing like family. <laughs> is that really what he sounds like? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty weak Vin Diesel. <laughs> I think you might want to just stick to your 1920s Chicago yeah, gangster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, family, see? Yeah. That's that's my Vin Diesel. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, so okay, you've described it and um tell me what did you think about what we read uh in brief? So, general impressions, I think visually it's a pretty big tour de force. I mean, the multiple artists, it's, what is it? I think 18 different art teams. It's mm -hmm. definitely a little bit jarring, um, especially if you're the kind of reader who prefers a consistent look. But I think as long as you're willing to accept that the art is going to change styles every, every 8 to 30 pages or so, I think... Mm -hmm you'll be able to appreciate all of the world building and the amazing design work that went into creating the universe of Maddie. And in mm. terms of the story itself, I'd say the plot's fairly simple. Like it's when you get down to it, it's really kind of just this road trip uh, with a super powered or I don't even, I guess I wouldn't even say superpowered, but a, a technologically modified mercenary who goes on a road trip with, I guess, an IT guy and a kid. 
and they go on this adventure across basically across the world to escape a multinational CEO guy who's chasing them. So like there's a fairly straightforward plot there, but I think because it's uh, a more action oriented story, it, it really does give room for the art to take center stage and showcase the world that all of these creators have imagined. I think it's a fun science fiction slash cyberpunk kind of story. I don't even know if I would really call it cyberpunk. It's It's got some elements of cyberpunk with the cyborg stuff and people being able to hack into other people's minds and that sort of thing. But the the world itself isn't super dilapidated looking to the degree that something like Blade Runner is or what you typically uh, envision cyberpunk to look like. This this feature is still a little bit cleaner than that. Yeah. There's there's definitely a heavy emphasis on technology, a heavy emphasis on... I guess they've taken... Duncan Jones and Alex DeCampi have taken what society looks like today and kind of projected it uh, in a sort of not super far out there, crazy advanced, but more just they've extrapolated what the future might look like uh, at a certain point without going all out, uh, you know, super out into space or things like that. It's more of a, a real realistic, I guess, uh, vision of the future where multiple uh, corporations kind of run everything. And yeah, I think I think the world is probably what grabbed me. And then the, the characters basically are, there's basically like three principal characters plus an antagonist. And uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all decently well-defined. Uh, the, the dialogue is pretty snappy it's well paced mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it is a essentially a, a road trip story and i think because of that it gives the s- story uh, a rhythm you're constantly going from one place to another as you follow these characters along their journey and as you're along for the ride you just kind of hang on to the edge of your seat as you wait to see how their adventure will turn out yeah yeah i wanted to cover some of the notes that you were talking about so i I definitely see how there could be this sort of ambiguity about whether it is cyberpunk or not Mm -hmm. um i think one of the things that complicates that is the fact that we have all these different artists who are working on this book Mm-hmm. So I think because they're all drawing in different styles, it tends to, uh, it, it doesn't really make it a consistent look. It doesn't really give it a consistent look, right? Because um, you do have someone, you, you do have some artists that draw in like really detailed styles and then some other artists who draw in a much more straightforward style. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I 
definitely can see how that again complicates the question of whether this is cyberpunk or not and the other thing that i was going to say was i i don't know there's a part of me that wants to consider the fact that this could be cyberpunk but maybe it's not quite the cyberpunk that we're accustomed to in the sense that mm-hmm. maybe maybe Duncan Jones maybe his notes were to take the idea of what we conventionally know as cyberpunk and to make a contemporary version of it so yeah. you know kind of to update it instead of going back to the core ideas of what cyberpunk are that we're we've become so accustomed to seeing which is something like blade runner right so um i, do, I think... do feel like cyberpunk as a genre tends to feature a lot of dystopian elements mm-hmm. it's not just that the world tends to look dirtier and grimier even though it's set in the future but i think yeah there's definitely a conscious uh dystopian element to it where yeah you you have better technology in a cyberpunk future yeah uh, really you know mind blowing technology but the thing that drags it down is that the people are just as awful as ever <laughs> yeah yeah if not I, worse definitely one of the main themes of cyberpunk is the idea that we have achieved the promise of the future that we have always envisioned but those promises those achievements really haven't done anything to i mean i guess they've improved our life lives in in some ways but in other ways just due to the very nature of man we've it it, it has not given us the utopia that we thought that we would achieve right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the technology that we have that they have in dystopian futures are often certainly more fantastic than the technology that we have but um but their technology is often old and dilapidated and grimy so you know and and i do think that that's an idea that kind of resonates with us in 2023 now more than ever because mm-hmm. we have seen the proliferation of so much technology but we've also seen just how awful that technology has mm-hmm. if you can if you think about the early internet um of like the 2000s there was just so much hope and optimism in the belief that <laughs> oh we're going to be able to communicate with people from all over the world it's going to make us like one community and we're going to be so much better off for it where you know it'll mitigate uh tensions and uh misunderstanding we will have a global <laughs> community and we'll be better off for it but the people behold, really believe we... that i think so i well okay i don't know if people believe that but it was i i do remember a lot of the rhetoric surrounding the internet you know and a lot of the rhetoric seem to be focused on the idea that a child in America will be able to talk to a child in Africa and like this mutual uh communication will bring us closer together as a 
global planetary community, right? But it turns out that all it did was it connected a bunch of neo-Nazis to one another. (laughs) 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 You know, and it just made people crazy because we didn't realize that all of a sudden. uh, Now they've got access to an echo chamber. Yeah, you've got access to an echo chamber. And now more than ever, you can teach people about how the earth is flat and the government's (laughs) run by lizard people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but Hey, um, you can, you can play video games without having to ever set foot in a blockbuster now. So <laughs> I guess it's a wash. <laughs> yeah. As long as you don't mind people online calling you racist names or insulting your yeah. family or sending you death threats or doxing you, you or know, swatting you or yeah. whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I think about other comics that kind of do their take on um, on on cyberpunk, and one of the ones that came to me was oh, it's called the New World. It's by Ailescott, and the artist is Trad Moore. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen Trad Moore stuff, it's like psychedelic pop, really brightly colored. But I do think that's still a comic that is very much like the the natural um successor to like our idea of cyberpunk because it really took the trappings of kind of the internet age and the aesthetic of the internet age like their world basically looks like fortnite if you had brought it into the real world (laughs) you know so mm-hmm. just a bunch of like bizarre people, bright colors. That's the thing that their future looks like. But at the same time, it's still kind of an awful future because, you know, we live in a state where <laughs> that information technology has kind of ruined everybody's brains. And on top of that, the government <laughs> is like, you know, not just government, but government and industry and corporations are just hoarding all of our personal personal data and just constantly watching us. But yep. we're like happy to be a part of it because <laughs> they're giving us the drug of our choice, which is the internet. Hey, I mean, just a couple hours ago, the algorithm gave me a dog video that I really needed to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> So I guess that's worth it so that we can have a bunch of fascists hanging out with one another and talking to each other. Yeah. All of the fascists are congregating via the internet and they've found getting themselves. Yeah. They found their family. They've been organizing themselves, but at least I'm able to soothe my mind and take my mind off all of these potential problems by watching cat videos. Yeah. See, totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, anyways, um, what, what were your initial thoughts on Maddie upon finishing it? I think it was a pretty straightforward story. Like you said, it's about. I I, I feel like everything that was in the back cover blurb pretty much covers it, right? It's mm-hmm. just this young woman who lives in this world where corporate corporate espionage is a pretty normal thing and these special soldiers 
go and perform these missions that they're hired for. But part of their ability set is that they are able to essentially shut off their brains and allow themselves to be co-opted to do these missions, right? Mm -hmm. And she is someone who is just so massively in debt that this is the only way that she can continue to make her living is augmenting her body, taking on more debt, and then going on these missions to pay off those augments. And she's just looking for like this one big score to clear her slate. She goes out there. She finds this, she finds this one score from a mysterious benefactor who basically tells her, Hey, this is your chance to like get out of it. And she discovers that, uh, the asset that she's going after is this kid, this kid who has the ability to, I don't know what the term is, but I guess it's like a technopath or something, you know, a kid who mm -hmm. can communicate with all technology and um, essentially it's a, a master key to, to any form of technology. Yeah. So, like Sage from the X-Men, right? Yeah, exactly. And what ends up happening is she develops a conscience and she decides I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it. And they go on a road trip. They go on the run, and it's about them trying to sort out their situation. Um, it's it's a very straightforward story. I think. I think the first thought that I had was, in spite of the fact that I enjoyed all these artists, I I wish. I think this is something that is telling of maybe Duncan Jones's. Um, inexperience with comics which is i think in the hands of a different writer they might have been able to incorporate more of a reason for why there are all these different visual styles that are going on something that makes the transition more smooth as you go from chapter to chapter right or not even chapter to chapter because there aren't really chapters in this book but as you go from scene to scene or set piece to set piece so but that's the thing though um, i think they actually did try to do that i think did they you? did yeah i think they actually did try the intention was that each artist would draw a different portion of the road trip and i, I think mm -hmm. for the most part that holds true but i think because you'll still see such jarring shifts in style sometimes yeah. it can be kind of hard to tell but i i think that was the way that they tried to divide up the the pages with maybe right. the exception being Christian Ward's pages, because I think he does pages that are interspersed throughout that kind of uh, illustrate the cyber world or I don't, I don't know what you call it, but um, yeah, for the most part, um, the different artists do try to tackle a specific scene yeah. Or, yeah. or not scene, but a different place. Yeah, but I'm just saying that it just felt like there wasn't ever a real transition. It always, to me, it just felt like there was just a hard stop before there was a sudden shift in the artist. And yeah, not even a stop. You just flip the page and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think there, I, I do know that there are writers that exist out there who, when given those circumstances, are able to integrate that into the story in a way that makes the transition from artist to artist almost seamless, right? But mm -hmm. I just don't think Duncan Jones was really thinking on that level. Well, here's the I, thing, because from what I understand about why they ended up 
producing the comic this way, it it really primarily was for expediency's sake. Yeah, yeah. Because and if, I you're trying to, that. if you're trying to find one artist to to do the whole thing, it would have taken is, forever. Yeah, this thing is like yeah. 250 or more pages, right? So that's like at least two years of work, and then uh, mm-hmm. it probably mm-hmm. would have taken Alex DeCampi and Duncan Jones time to even find the artist and there's no guarantee that yeah. the artist would have been free when they wanted him so maybe they would have had to wait for the artist to become free so by the time yeah. that artist that single artist could have finished it you know we'd still be we wouldn't be here talking about exactly maddie exactly. we'd be waiting for it to come out <laughs> exactly i acknowledge that that you know expediency is probably the primary reason for why they did what they did but i also I can't ignore the fact that there were that you know as a reading as as part of the reading experience it's 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 kind of harsh at times you know So let me ask you would you have preferred Maddie if they only had one artist Um I remember a friend once said that what did he say he said that if you end up using one artist to do a comic that takes x amount of years at least by the time that that comic is done it'll be a good comic but you know if you just try to speed it up then that comic is probably just going to be bad forever (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and i'm not even going to go so far as to say that this was a bad comic but you know, I'm not gonna ignore its shortcomings either, right? Well, like the that's kind of what we're here for. So I, I acknowledge that they're the the various artists are terrific, but that's just also part of the reading experience. Is you'll read and then turn a page, and then it, it's kind of like running into a brick wall. So yeah, I think maybe there could have been a way. And you know, far be who am I? Who far be it for me to tell Duncan Jones how it should or needs to be done, right? But I was gonna say maybe there's a way that if he had rotated the artist, you know, uh, he he might have been he could have found the sweet spot between speeding the book up and uh, doing something where you could have had maybe fewer artists, but they would have been able to cover it in a more consistent sort of way. So just it's thought. more about the consistency. That's the thing that disrupts the, the lack of consistency is the thing that kind of disrupts the reading experience for you. Cause it, it seems like it's not the various artists there's out of all the artists, there isn't really a bad artist in the group. But it's no, just the fact that everybody that they're all so different and they're all just packed into this small amount of space. That's the thing that makes it disruptive. I, I I'd say so. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty obvious that it's a, a neurotic reading experience. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say. I mean, but at that point, it's also a matter of preference. It's uh, if you have the ability to you know if it doesn't bother you that much then yeah it doesn't bother you uh, like by all means 
but um you know i i guess i just have to i i i me personally i i felt like that was something worth making a note of uh if you're going if i'm going to talk about it and present it to other people who are listening it's something that they our listeners should be aware of mm-hmm because the thing what with all of the different artists in this book kind of reminds me of one of the biggest pitfalls of a lot of big two comics nowadays is, especially I see this in, in Marvel comics, but I'm sure it happens a lot in DC as well, where you'll have like a five issue story arc, but it'll have maybe three or four different artists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that drives me nuts. You can yeah. tell that they usually do that because they're just trying to meet deadlines, not because there's some specific story reason that either calls for, or even could intelligently accommodate for a reason to use different artists. It's purely just so that Marvel could, you know, pump out five issues of something in the span of what, three months or whatever, but maybe even five months, but it's, I don't, I really don't like it. And I think it's it's even worse with Marvel because those artists are often pretty uh pretty bland or they're just you know jobbers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, with Maddie, I, I think it's I agree with you that it is pretty jarring. Some of the styles are wildly disparate from each other, but I think it doesn't hurt quite as bad because the art is high quality all around like there isn't a bad artist in in the whole list and i i do think independently if you just look at the different sections of the book they look great and i think uh visually it's it's consistent in the sense that all the visuals are good but it's inconsistent in the sense that you can really tell when there's a different artist and that that's the thing that I do find disruptive also, just like you do. Mm-hmm. So it's not my favorite, but I think I kind of understood that's what we were getting ourselves into when we backed the book. That's true. That's true. I mean, I when you're presented with that many artists, I think it's a high it's a high order for any creator to seamlessly integrate it right like the one example that i can think of and it wasn't even that many artists it was two right was uh greg rucka when he was working on his wonder woman rebirth mm-hmm. he was presented with these two artists and i don't i don't know what his thought process was but i i get the impression that it wasn't something that he necessarily wanted to have happen but because he understood that he had these two different artists to work with he ended up making it so that he had two concurring stories going on at the same time and Mm -hmm. each artist would be working on those stories and towards the end he found a way to have those stories come together uh in their climax right Mm-hmm. which i do think is clever and yeah. it's a, if you're gonna do it that's that's a pretty good way to do it but yeah. not everybody is greg rucka so what are you gonna do exactly 
Mm-hmm. So I guess that's one of the biggest things about Maddie is just the fact that it's got so many artists because it's really rare. I, I really can't think of another full-length graphic novel that features this many artists. Heck, even in, if you just take a Marvel or a DC series within the span of like, I don't know, how about how, how many issues would you say Maddie is approximately the size, like eight issues, 10 issues, mm. whatever it is. Like, it's hard to imagine uh, an 18 different artist lineup for a, a single Marvel or DC book. Mm. I mean, they, they definitely use a bunch of artists. I don't know if I've seen them use that many artists in that span of issues, but uh, Maddie is unique because I really don't think there is another comic that has this many artists trying to tell one cohesive and coherent story. You know, it's not an anthology. Like, everything is meant to be read in a linear fashion. And it, it just so happens mm-hmm. that they got a bunch of different artists to draw every all the different sequences. So I don't know. Like on some level, it, it kind of makes me feel like it, it's almost like watching a movie where every 10 minutes you get a different actor playing the the main character <laughs> or something. Right. <laughs> and, and I will say there were even times where... <laughs> I think I like lost track of who I was reading just because they looked different. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I think there was one sequence I I, I didn't write I'm not exactly sure uh who the artist for the sequence was, but there's one part where Maddie and Ted and the kid are on the run. And they, at, on, in, at the end of one scene, you see them inside the car or inside the, the, yeah, the SUV or the van or whatever that they're driving. And Ted is wearing this patterned Hawaiian shirt. Ted is wearing this patterned Hawaiian shirt. And it's got this sort of floral pattern on it. And then when you flip the page, uh, in the next scene, he's still wearing the same kind of shirt, like the it's got the yellow and the collar and everything, but the pattern is gone, <laughs> mm. and that's just kind of uh, a little flub, I think. Because yeah, I mean, I, I suppose you could say, no, he just changed the shirt uh, in between pages, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's just a flub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a reason characters even in like big two comics there's a reason you don't like see them change outfits super often unless it's from their street clothes to their costumes right Mm -hmm. it's it's the point of it is uh cohesiveness for the reading experience yeah but but it's a very minor thing but it was still something that i noticed and it, it did kind of take me out of it for a second it's yeah, like, what, yeah. What happened to a shirt? <laughs> and then when it goes back to the other artist, the flowers are back on his shirt. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, that's the thing, though. That's what I'm saying is, I, I, you know, as someone who enjoys Duncan Jones's work, I do think 
I'm I'm pretty sure this is his like the first comic he's ever done. Yeah. I read so an I wonder... interview with him and Alex DeCampi, yeah. and this is his first comic. So yeah. like the way that he was talking about it, like he was definitely really leaning on Alex DeCampi's experience because you know, she's been in comics for quite a while. She's mm. won awards and, and things like that. So he had a lot of respect for her and they, they yeah. worked together, they collaborated. Um, from what it sounded like, it seemed like they had a, a Google Doc or something of something similar where they would both, you know, work on on the script uh, together and and really have this uh, collaboration where it wasn't just it it wasn't just him coming up with the plot outline and then having an experienced comic book writer, uh, you know, break everything down. They they actually <laughs> worked together. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I believe that. Like he, Duncan Jones doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would just. Well, first of all, he's not like a huge name, so it's it's not like he would just slap his name on something just to try to cash in on it. And um, from what I remember, I do think that this is a passion project on his part because one of the things that I remember reading about this comic was that. It is part of a thematic trilogy that he's been working on. And the other two stories in that trilogy are uh, Moon with Sam Rockwell. And he did one for Netflix called Mute. I never saw that one, but it was it's always been in the back of my mind to watch it or to check it out just to get the whole the full thematic trilogy experience, you know, mm-hmm. between reading Maddie and watching the movie uh, Moon. Uh, that's that's the one gap that I seem to be missing. So I did I didn't want to watch that. I I probably still will at some point. I just don't have Netflix. So there we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So would you say what what would you say are the connective themes between Moon and Maddie? Is it family? Uh, that's the thing. I, I don't think it is because Moon really wasn't about family. Like, I don't want to give away too much about Moon because there there is some... Uh, I mean, one, it's been a while since I watched it, so it's not super fresh in my memory. And the other thing is, there, from what I remember, there is stuff in there that comes as kind of a surprise to the viewer so mm-hmm. i don't want to uh, spoil that for anyone but um for the most part moon is about a astronaut trapped in space trying to get home and i guess he's trying to get home to his family he's he's got this idea of what family is but i don't think it's really specifically about the idea of family beyond that you know okay okay yeah but so I if will not say, family, what would you say the, the connective theme is? I would say it's what I was saying earlier. It's it's a lot of what we see of the future. As, Optimism? It, yeah, exactly. It's sincerity, right? It's mm. I think we've come to a point in our science fiction where it might be passe to look at the future with optimism because so much of the time we tend to look at the future as a pretty bleak thing, right? 
Well, um, the, the present is pretty bleak. The present is pretty crappy. So it's hard to imagine a future that will be any better. It just feels like exactly. every year humanity continues and continues to decline. Well, there we go, right? I mean, I, I assume that once humanity's wiped itself out, if I'm the last living person, then then I've probably achieved the future I wanted. Um, but... <laughs> so that would be a bright future for you, man. That would. <laughs> Everybody else is gone. You can just well, have a world of peace, and you can read yeah. your comics to your heart's content. Exactly, exactly. But I was going to say, like, I feel like the last period of real true optimism of the future was probably something like in the, the, in the post-war era, right? Where after World War II, there's all this stuff about the future and, you know, America is kind of on, on the rise. We are one of the most powerful nations in the world. We're really feeling ourselves we have yet to really confront the fact that there are these massive blemishes in our collective history, right? But there's this belief that we defeated the Nazis in World War II, we brought peace to Europe and to the world, and there's this real sign, sense of optimism in the world. Um, people look, well, I don't even know if the 50s is right, but whatever that period of the world's fair and all that stuff was that that's actually well before it, but you know, there's, there's that period of time where all, all the films were about just how great the future was going to be. And I think since that period, we haven't really seen too much of that. It, it just feels like once the eighties hit and we got Blade Runner, the future was all of a sudden became all about that moving forward, right? Um, we we've seen a bunch of what's it called? We we've seen a bunch of dystopian futures in a myriad of forms, and that seems to be the consensus take on what the future is like. And like you said, we're, our our present isn't great, so why would we have any reason to believe that our future is going to be any better? But I do think that what duncan jones did with moon and what he did with maddie maddie uh, however you pronounce it um i do think that it's his way of finding a silver lining and a thread of optimism within a potentially bleak within potentially bleak circumstances right so I remember one of the things that he was talking about in an interview about Moon, and my memory is crap, so there's a chance I could be remembering this wrong, but I remember at the time it really jumped out at me because in Moon, it's a movie about Sam Rockwell on the space station, and there is nobody on the space station with him, so he is absolutely reliant on the AI of the space station, right? Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is... Uh, the way that the, the movie is filmed, you get, there's this constant question that hovers over the entirety of the film where you're constantly sitting and waiting for the AI to turn out to be the villain to do something to him, right? Mm. And then it turns out by the end of it, you know, that's not the case. Um, well, I guess I spoiled that for people, but... <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I was going to say in the interview, what, what Duncan Jones said was that he purposefully designed the AI in the movie to sound and to remind people of Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey. And if you've ever seen that, I'm going to ruin that for you too. But <laughs> um, Hal in 2000 Sp 2001 Space Odyssey is the famous AI that goes crazy and kills everybody aboard the space station. So, you know, the whole time he wanted the, the, sh the ship in Moon to remind people of that so that people would be constantly unsettled and un uneasy about this AI. Um, and then what eventually happens is he subverts that by having the AI turn out to be actually pretty decent, hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and he, and Duncan Jones was like so committed to making the AI menacing. He got Kevin Spacey to do the voice. And we all know that he is a massive sex fiend. <laughs> oh, man, he did the voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh oh. He was the voice of the AI. <laughs> Man, I kind of wish you didn't tell me that part. <laughs> right. Actually, was he? I was pretty sure he was. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Uh, well, you can go ahead and check. But I, 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 yeah. while you look it up, I wanted to lightly push back a little bit on what you were yeah. saying a little earlier about how in the wake of World War II, how that kind of kicked off this period of optimism and hope for, or not just hope, but expectation of a bright future. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. one of the most famous uh, works of dystopian science fiction is 1984, and that was published in 1949. Right. So there's, like, on some level, I feel like there have always been artists and writers thinkers, people who, creative people who have had a negative outlook on the future because you could look at 1984 by George Orwell and realize that it's not necessarily about the year 1984. It's probably about the year 1949. Maybe that's what a lot of dystopian science fiction is about where it's like positing a dark or a grim future a dystopian future but it's really commenting on the present so so maybe i guess it it's possible to say that 1984 isn't really necessarily a grim image of the future because it's meant to be taken as like a commentary on the present but i mean regardless of whether you want to get into the semantics of that I guess I'm just thinking about how something like that or Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, famous books like that, they've always been around even in the midst of Yeah, yeah. But you know, like we can look back at and look at those times as oh yeah, that was those were the times when America was on the rise and things were we're going real well for the country and therefore the world because, you know, as Americans, it's our duty and patriotic duty to be ethnocentric because as long as we're doing well, that means the world is doing well. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, there's still, like, even back then, there was, like, the Korean War and, and other stuff that we don't really talk about too much because it wasn't, well, I'm not really sure why we don't study those wars as much as World War II, but 
you know, there's always things in the world that are I imagine it's because up. we didn't win those wars outright. <laughs> yeah. That's probably that's probably why. <laughs> Silly me. We only talk about the ones we win. Yeah. We don't talk about the we we tend to downplay the ones that we break even or like straight out lose. <laughs> yeah, but we're always talking about, you know, 1776 and the War of Independence. We're talking about World yeah. War 2. <laughs> but uh yeah, not not too much talking about Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I acknowledge that. I, but I think, well, I guess if I had to try to pin it down, I'd say it, it's it's about whatever's in the zeitgeist, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, gr- granted, I wasn't alive in that period, so maybe I, I, I can't speak for whoever was feeling miserable about the future in in those times but it it did feel like there was this general push towards optimism and uh and and, you know it is by no means an absolute uh uh notion right so yeah i'm sure there were absolutely some people who looked at the future even then and thought you know that we we might have uh, unleash the power of the atom, but what are we doing for the you know social fabric of all of our citizens? Are we really addressing that? And mm. have we really even considered whether unleashing the power of the atom is really as good a thing as we thought it was? Yeah, eh, not so much, right? But sometimes it takes having to live with that, with a couple of you know three mile islands before you kind of get the feeling that hey, maybe this isn't so great. Mm-hmm. that's a good yeah point. yeah yeah but yeah you know back to what i was saying so um the thing about moon oh yeah and by the way was kevin it, spacey is in it it was kevin spacey yeah. okay he was just removed from the wikipedia because well because he's kevin spacey <laughs> well someone removed him from the wikipedia entry i think so he's not listed in the cast yeah if you're looking at uh when when I look at the side thing for Moon and you look at uh, who who it's starring, Kevin Spacey's name isn't in there. But then when I checked on IMDb, he was totally in there. In oh, there. so you know oh. what you got to do, Albert? You got to update Wikipedia. <laughs> sure, I'll I'll jump right on it after this. Um, <laughs> but I do think that thread exists in Maddie as well because their world is kind of gross. Well, I guess depending on which artist that you're looking at, there's there's that sense that it's a very loud and busy world where mm-hmm. we're, our senses mm-hmm. are just constantly under assault by like stimulus, right? And that's not too far off from our world because we're basically walking around with little machines that are just blasting us with stimulus 24-7, right? Exactly. Yeah, and, the, the and, world of Maddie is very dense, especially all the cities that we visit in the story. They're all very yeah. dense. And even the time... When we do go to the desert, uh, there's that sequence where they go to the Grand Canyon, but there's a gigantic casino thing built there. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if if I was to point to things to, you know, to uh, solidify the argument for Maddie being a, you know, uh, a, a cyberpunk dystopian future i would say that those elements are are the things that sort of indicate that is it's i feel like you see 
in a lot of cyberpunk just really when you go to the cities it always feels super dense it always feels like people are just living in cramped spaces it just and it doesn't feel like a really nice welcoming place right you're just kind of ants in an ant farm mm. mm-hmm. so but in spite of that in spite of the harshness of that world i do think that maddie herself you know she's she's kind of that archetypal character who's i'm tired of being a part of the ant farm or this 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 society and i just want out she's very much that that kind of character who who doesn't want who who lives in the world but yearns for something greater right and when she gets the opportunity to free herself from that she takes it but then ultimately when she realizes that the thing that she has to do is essentially sell this kid into uh to sell this kid to a corporation where they're going to dismantle him to figure out how his abilities work she 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 her conscience takes over and she decides to do the right thing and then on top of that when her sister rona rona is that how i pronounce it rona 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 or rana Rona. i'm not i'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it i'm gonna go with rona so when her sister finds out that maddie goes on the run she goes after maddie with her with the j squad you know uh the j unit j squad (laughs) unit whatever (laughs) j unit (laughs) you like that i was able to work uh i was able to work a 50 cent reference in here (laughs) you thinking of the g unit (laughs) yeah but i was going with j unit okay j unit (laughs) (laughs) but yeah she so you would think that eventually there's going to be this rift between her and her sister because uh even at the beginning of the story they have this conversation where maddie tells her like i just don't want to be part of this anymore and her sister's kind of offended by it because her her whole in her mind the the whole situation is well we were in this together from the start and we were supposed to see see this through together and for maddie to like cut out on that like yeah. she's, she's understandably hurt by it yeah. but then when rana and the j squad go after them they end up helping maddie out they they decide to take it upon themselves to help her get away from steven and uh the red sun corporation mm-hmm. so it's about I do family think... it's about family <laughs> it's always about family <laughs> <laughs> Is that your Vin now I'm just doing, Yeah, now I'm just doing it for fun. <laughs> Never forget. It's always about family. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I do think that there's something genuine at the core of of uh of Maddie. So if 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 you were to ask me what the connective tissue between those things are though that's what i'd say is that in spite of the ugliness of it all of the circumstances of or of the world there's something genuine and sincere at the root of it so mm-hmm. ultimately it's hopeful optimistic mhm yeah that makes sense especially because that's the like the way it the, the way the story ends it's definitely 
hopeful and optimistic ending kind of gives you those warm feeling vibes when you see the J yeah. squad and Rona come back to help Maddie and things basically work out about as best as they could have been expected or as best as Maddie could have hoped. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, that optimistic ending definitely, I think that like, affects the, it, the tone and the tenor of the book as uh-huh. a whole. Yeah. It's so optimistic that I think, for a good chunk of the book, there's a part of you that expects that it's going to end with maybe Maddie sacrificing herself. And, you know, maybe that's probably the best case scenario, right? She Mm -hmm. saves the kid, but at the expense of her own life. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is she saves the kid. They run off together to Canada and like, they're going to start a family. And the, guy that runs the evil corporation he gets his comeuppance mm-hmm. <laughs> like that that doesn't even happen in this world in the it real doesn't. world <laughs> you know i imagine so, it was a bit of catharsis to write a scene like that yeah yeah right <laughs> there yeah there are a bunch of corporate ne'er-do-wells who are mm-hmm. still just walking around even though they screwed a bunch of people over <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah what were you gonna say just that even though this is an optimistic book at heart, an uplifting book, there are still elements in here. Going back to our discussion regarding cyberpunk, I'm not sure if I would strongly state that this is a cyberpunk story. I think I'm still undecided at the moment. But I would say that if we were looking for points to kind of back up the notion of this being a cyberpunk story i think another thing in addition to the density of the city spaces one of the other things is the corporate greed at play like there's definitely a whole lot of stuff in the story about corporate greed i mean the a corporation is essentially the literal villain of the comic so it doesn't really get much more straightforward than that but the dystopian future that is perpetrated by these corporations it kind of explains why the world is the way it is and why there are people who are in massive debt because of the augmentations and things that they've had in their bodies so it's like they've got these augmentations and they've they were supposed to be you know military forces but i guess because of the cost of these augmentations, for some reason, I don't really know why, it's on the individuals to pay for these costs. Therefore, they have to become mercenaries just to make more money so they can pay off these augmentations. But as they, you know, as they continue to go on missions and things like that, you know... They just accrue more costs, more expenses. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. There's expenses associated with that, you know, just like... Yeah. Any other mercenary gig, it's just how it is. Except in this future, the mercenaries, you know, they have technological advancements or things of that nature where they become like drones. So it's it's also kind of a, a commentary on how the future of warfare is going to be fought. You know, we're, yeah. we're already using drones in in wars today so like the next step would be to be able to control a living creature 
to make that creature essentially be uh, like a remote controlled car that you can use to fight your wars. You know, it's almost like Wii 3, but except instead of animals, it's a person using a controller or a virtual reality set to control another person, <laughs> which is yeah. pretty wild. You know, that's some Ghost in the Shell kind of stuff right there. People can Actually, get their brains hacked and everything. Hmm? Yeah. I was going to say, now that you've like mentioned it, like I do think that, you know, to go back to what you were saying earlier about how it's it's kind of hard to wrap your head around the idea that they're mercenaries, but they have to pay for all their own stuff. Um, I do think, actually, if you think about the trajectory of like just how corporate entities are, that kind of makes a lot of sense because um, a lot of the times the way that big corporations work is that because they have all the leverage in a relationship and a lot of the times these monopolies exist, when they, when they, you know, quote unquote, give people business, it doesn't come with, it doesn't come without strings attached. And often the strings attached are a lot of risks that are placed on the, on the onus of the quote unquote small business. It just so happens that the small business in this case is a band of mercenaries, right? Mm. But it reminds me of one okay for like one example that i can think of is um there's been a lot of talk recently about animators working for corporations like disney and mm. how well even the writers strike that's going on right now right but yeah. uh specifically the animators they talk about how disney pays them for their work but they're super demanding about how they what they want so a lot of the times they will contract out for specific desirables but then they have the ability to demand more of them and because you know work is only so limited for someone with that kind of a skill set in in uh, animation what ends up happening is they have no choice but to do it because how else will they get paid otherwise right and they suffer like burnout and uh you know damage to their own personal health and so it it's it's not a big uh leap for me to imagine that a corporation would hire these mercenaries and say we'll hire you and we'll pay you but you also have to take care of a lot of your expenses we're not giving you like a, an expense account to take care of our our needs you know <laughs> yeah um and like another example that i was thinking of is uh with like amazon you know how uh, they have all these Amazon delivery people? Mm -hmm. uh, I remember an article not too long ago where it talked about how a lot of the delivery people are actually small contractors and Amazon just horrendously screws those people over because I forget what the specific details were, but it does stuff. That they, they basically do things like they hire these companies and when there's a failure for them to perform on Amazon's and they make it so that all the liability falls on these companies. So um, these small delivery companies are just kind of caught in the middle. And when things go bad, these small contractors are the ones who end up, you know, going massively into debt, even though um, the failure stems from Amazon. It's, it's really messed up. Like I, 
I'd have to I'd have to go back and look at what the specific conditions were. But again, it's just another example of like these big corporations who write these very favorable contracts that you know obviously are are going to support them um mm-hmm. while screwing over all of the little kind of guppies that are trying to coexist with them within this ecosystem yeah it's just your classic case of corporate greed exactly exactly of course there are always going to be people who defend these corporations because hey that's just what capitalism is so yeah it'd yeah. be <laughs> it'd be wrong to try and regulate what they're what they're doing if if those yeah. small fish don't want to get screwed over don't sign the contract yeah that's that's essentially their argument a lot of the times it's like well if you didn't want to take on risk then you shouldn't have started a a, a company yeah <laughs> which is yeah it's messed up yeah it's <laughs> I don't even know how to begin to have a discourse with someone like that. <laughs> it's the free market, Drew. Like, <laughs> what, all, what else is there? What's more important than the almighty dollar? <laughs> you don't want to be a communist or a socialist. Uh, I mean, I don't, but still. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a happy medium in there somewhere, yeah. right? Like, the reaction to, like, being anti-communist isn't, well, I'm willing to give all my rights away to corporations. That'll teach the commies. <laughs> I'm going to work 14-hour days. I'm going to allow children to work in factories because, you know, communism's bad. <laughs> uh, well, here's another question, you... Albert. Yeah, sure, shoot. One thing that I read from a science fiction writer once was that Science fiction is social fiction. I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but mm-hmm. science fiction is social fiction. And good science fiction is on some level not about the future, but about the present. So science fiction is about social speculation. So let me ask you, based on that definition of science fiction, what if anything does Maddie have to say about our current times? I don't agree with messages in my science fiction, Drew. <laughs> I just want good science fiction. Don't try to come at me with your agendas and your messages. <laughs> I liked it better when my science fiction didn't have messages. <laughs> I just want lasers and things shooting things with lasers. And that's it. That's my idea of the future. <laughs> pew 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 pew. Ja, 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 ja. Kablamo. Um I I do think that we actually hit on a lot of those notes in what we were talking about earlier because they do, we the world of Maddie is one in which corporations are so prevalent and so powerful that they can buy the very, they can buy a person's body and use it for like all sorts of horrible ends, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the revelations of the comic is eventually when they're trying to save the kid, 
they dredge up this memory where they discover that the person that killed the kid's parents that initially got him kidnapped, right? Because this kid has this technopath ability where he can talk to all machines. So the person that initially took this kid the first time around was actually Maddie herself, but she had shut down her consciousness and allowed the corporation to use her body to like do this horrible thing to this kid. Mm -hmm. And he ends up running off because he's afraid of her and he's mad at her understandably for like killing her, his parents. But what does that say where, you know, we live in a world where like, again, big business is just so massive and so prevalent that there is almost no area in life that you can't where 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 you're not going to run into some form of business that is you know that has some presence in your life right mm-hmm. like unless you go out and live in a secluded wilderness that's just not going to happen <laughs> and i, I want to say that that's that's kind of what he's doing with maddie is that it's just the the natural progression of that sort of predominance of corporations where where you get to a point where the corporations own so much of you that they even own your body like you, they mm. can rent your bodies to the point where you shut off your brain and they take over your body and use it to do whatever right it's your your very being that they are controlling so i do think there's that element of it there. Like the corporations in Mari are are super powerful and super all-encompassing and all they want is more power, right? Because the idea yeah. is once we get this kid, we can use him, we can use him to basically unlock any encryption. We can go into any computer system. It'll make us the predominant uh, economic uh, powerhouse amongst all these other massively powerful corporations we how how would we have any other competition um in in that space so the idea that it ends with this company having to take responsibility not just this company but the people at the top of this company taking responsibility for their actions that's that's some real science fiction right there (laughs) science fiction or fantasy yeah, I know exactly. I was about to say <laughs> it might as well be fantasy. It's up there with like dragons and sorcerers. <laughs> the only reason we're laughing know. is because we don't want to cry on our recording. <laughs> it's uh it's sad. It's sad because it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that being said, we're totally willing to shell ourselves out to any company that's willing to pay us <laughs> billions of dollars. So, you know, if any uh, big corporations or terrorist organizations are willing to fund us, we'll shill for you. Uh, you hear that, Amazon? We love you. <laughs> Amazon daddy, give us our money. <laughs> This episode of Between the Gutters is proudly presented by Amazon, the corporation (laughs) that loves you. (laughs) 
have an Amazon day. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Did you feel like you gleaned anything about any of the social commentary that they were making? Well, I want to go back to what you were just saying in response to that question, because you, you were mm -hmm. talking about the power of these corporations to even literally be able to control these mercenaries' bodies. And as you were describing that, it just made me think about how, I don't know if it's intentional on Duncan Jones and Alex DeCampi's part, but hearing you describe it, it does make it feel like that whole, the way that whole thing works, the way that these mercenaries drone bodies kind of work does seem like a metaphor for the dangers of corporations growing bigger and bigger and more and more powerful with every passing decade. Cause it, mm -hmm. yeah, like, like we know that these corporations, you know, they want to get gather as much information about us as possible so they can build these algorithms to target us with advertisements and, things that they can sell us, make uh, make us fall into their ecosystem so that we'll be hooked into, yeah. you, you know, continuing to buy things um, that they sell mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, just become either dependent or addicted to the things that they offer. And yeah. it, it does kind of seem like an apt metaphor for that is to get to the point where they literally own your body or at least have the ability to just control your body where you, your mind just shuts down and they can just use you to do whatever they want. Because I'm sure if there was a way yeah. for these corporations to monetize that, they would totally be down for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it sounds far fetched, but the fact of the matter is the corporation, you know, corporations don't care about any of us in the slightest because you're right. If there have been studies that have been conducted that, that have shown the, harmful effects of um too much social media or too much internet and these were studies conducted by these corporations and what did they do they just decided to like hide that information <laughs> they like hid it all away because at the end of the day like it it means more for them to have us addicted to the internet and constantly on tiktok or you know uh, Facebook or whatever, then it, it it means more to them to have us addicted to those things than it does for the fabric of society that we be like well adjusted, right? Because that mm -hmm. doesn't give them anything. So like to to go and say that this idea that if you told a story where a corporation becomes so powerful that they can just rent your bodies, they can buy your physical body out from underneath you, underneath your conscious mind. A lot of people would say that's just hyperbolic. That's, you know, that's not realistic. That's not a thing that could happen. But the real question is if they could do it and if they could get away with it, would they do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'd wager probably, <laughs> you yeah, know, that's true. Yeah. Uh, like that's the real, like terrifying realization that you should have. Mm -hmm. Good point. Good point. Uh, I think in terms of any any other related themes, I would say uh, like that's probably the, the biggest thing that I saw is just the, the corporation 
as this all-encompassing entity that's just trying to eat the world. Like I, I felt like yeah. in terms of commentary about our present times, I mean, maybe there is some other stuff that I'm not really seeing, but but for me, the corporation aspect, um, you know, just the way that pe- regular regular normal people, and I guess I'm counting the mercenaries in that group because they're not like CEOs of international conglomerates or anything. But for for regular people, it, it's hard to get out of the umbrella of these things that permeate our lives you know as much as as much as we don't respect or like corporations as much as we don't care about the people who are leading them you know we still buy their products and use their services <laughs> there's like yeah, there's no real yeah. getting around it and i'd, I'd say you'd be it, i don't know if it's impossible but I feel like it would be extremely difficult to live a life where you wouldn't have to compromise yourself by spending money on a company's services, you know, a, a corporation that mm. you don't respect or something like that. Like I just feel like yeah, you'd have to be some kind of monk or something, you know? You'd have to live in a monastery, avoid the internet, and just be content uh, apart from mainstream society yeah yeah actually listening to you talk about it it did it did shake something loose in my brain as well Uh, and i i think it's another modern bit of commentary that they're making maybe it's not all too different from what we've been talking about but um the thought occurred to me that it also the comic also looks at the idea of debt or debt traps as being this thing that they use to control us, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, especially like in American society, well, like I I just saw like a a post this this week that I think said that sixty percent of people are living paycheck to paycheck or consider themselves as living paycheck to paycheck, right? And you know that's kind of what happens when you're in a situation where in order to get by on a day-to-day level, you end up accruing more debt. But then again, what other choice do you have? Right. And that's, it's the idea of this is how they get you. And it feels like the situation in Maddie is just this extreme situation version of that. Right. Because again, they are, essentially blue-collared workers they're mercenaries right they, mm-hmm. they get paid to do a job but they they don't even make enough money where they can really live well they're just kind of coasting uh you know right 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 just on top of the surface they make just enough money to cover their dues and uh keep going but with every passing day they just accrue more debt and it says something that it says something that the service that they provide is selling their augmented bodies to these companies to use in order to, you know, for whatever. And the way that they like hold them in check is through, through debt as a trap, as, as a cage. Yeah. Um, That's another good point. Yeah. 
it's yeah there's a lot more to this comic than i had realized if i, I this conversation with you has uh shaken a lot loose for me <laughs> <laughs> i was reading uh an interview with duncan jones and alex de campy about maddie and they were talking about one of the other big themes of the book and this one isn't necessarily related to anything uh, science fictiony or uh like social commentary in the sense of like the dystopian future that we're trying to avoid but uh, rather uh, they were talking about the theme of family which is something that even the back cover blurb of the book highlights and you know we've We've mentioned a little bit about it and how uh, we see Maddie and Rona, their sisters, even when they disagree with each other, Rona didn't turn her back on Maddie just because she decided to, you know, do her own one woman job. At the end of it, we see that Rona and the rest of the J squad, they end up helping Maddie and they end up, uh, you know, engaging in, you know, putting their lives at risk in order to engage the enemy forces. But one of the things I thought was pretty interesting in the interview with the writers was when they were talking about the theme of family, they mentioned how, uh, I, don't, I don't think, I think they had already written the script by the time the pandemic and everything started, but I think because the Kickstarter was going on around the time when the pandemic was pretty close to its height, they were discussing how, um, you know, people have been living uh, pretty secluded lives in those months early in the pandemic and uh, the lockdown and everything has kind of changed situations or even affected relationships. So like one of the things that they saw in their story that kind of pertained to those times and, and perhaps even still our times right now is that sometimes uh, the people who aren't necessarily related to you by blood will help you when you really need it. And then sometimes people that you think you can rely on are the ones that are going to let you down when you need them the most. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that was something that they said. Um, it kind of makes me look at the story again and look for that idea because once they mentioned it, yeah, I, I see it throughout the story. When I was reading it on my own, I think subconsciously it's one of those ideas that I understand and, you know, I, I, I can see it, but I, I don't necessarily think about it because it, the story isn't like really going out of its way to emphasize those elements. But knowing that it's there and looking for it now that I am consciously thinking about it. Yeah, it definitely permeates the work. You just see the lengths that Maddie will go through to, to help this kid who really has no relation to her. Like the only, like the biggest thing that's driving her is just knowing some of the guilt because somebody used her body to capture him in the first place. And now she's just kind of trying to make things right. Mm-hmm. And then the whole situation with Ted, like you spent so much, we spend so much of the story seeing Ted and Maddie together and he, yeah, he doesn't seem like necessarily a, a bad guy to begin with. Like he, 
I think you just the way you described him in in your notes is that you called him a, a scoundrel and ragamuffin who joins Maddie, <laughs> Maddie and the kid on their road trip. Yeah, like he's the kind of guy who gets into trouble for a buck. So you know he he does come across as sort of that Han Solo esque sort of character. Yeah, he's a like a rogue. Yeah, so he's yeah. willing to team up with them because there's something in it for him. So you don't really have to worry about where his loyalties lie because you, you just assume well he's got something to gain from from helping them but then at the end you you realize now he was uh working against them this whole time and yeah he's not trustworthy he he let her he let maddie and the kid dean he, he let them down at the at the worst possible time and in some sense like Steven is the antagonist who runs the the corporation that's chasing them down but mm-hmm. i guess on some level you could even say that Ted is is he worse i don't know i guess you know, i don't really need to make a case for who's worse or or you know measure the levels of villainy but mm-hmm. like they're both villains is what i'm saying yeah. like Ted Ted is the guy that Maddie thought maybe she could trust and I think to some extent she did trust him, but he ends up betraying her at the end. And yeah, yeah, it doesn't turn out well. From what I remember, I think the revelation is, wasn't he the guy that was essentially hijacking her body to 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 commit those acts to get the kid in the first place? Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think, and I, I think that's why he had so much insider information. Yeah, but that's also, I think, par for the course in terms of just, I guess, the dehumanizing aspects of of capitalism, right? Where we, it's not, it's not just the singular nature of, oh, some big corporate bigwig at the top of some company who's who's making these decisions that are screwing us over. It's 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 the sort of thing that also affects people on the ground to treat each other badly because at the end of the day, the people that are trying to survive end up doing these things, doing terrible things to other people just for money, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I think it made sense that they didn't want to make it just as simple as, look at how bad this guy in a suit is (laughs) <laughs> when when the effects of that uh corporate ecosystem just fans out in all sorts of directions and causes a bunch of people to do a bunch of terrible things yeah mm. you have any other thoughts about the book um no i think i'm good i I do. I I agree with what you were saying earlier that it it is a showcase for a lot of very talented artists, and I I, I appreciated uh, all of their contributions to it. So it's it's a very good looking book. Did you have any final thoughts? Mm, not really. I think if I shared anything, I would just be kind of reiterating a lot of the yeah. stuff that we just said. Did you have any? a particular artist that specifically stood out to you or like did you have like favorite 
sequences or favorite artists in the book? Uh, again, I mentioned James Stokoe, but I do enjoy that whole scene where they're at the casino and it's just kind of James Stokoe's style is pretty cartoony and very detail oriented. So it's just fun to see him just going off and doing what he does and just his version of Vegas, you know? Yeah, his vision, that two page spread of the vegas casino thing that's built over the grand canyon that's that's pretty wild and crazy <laughs> it's like mm. it's just super sprawling the the buildings are built right into the the cliffs and stuff and then like over the chasm there are these bridges that connect the different buildings to to each other and it's just super gaudy with all these lights and you have those neon signs that just look like vegas signs it's pretty imaginative to think of designing a massive Vegas-like city over the Grand Canyon. Yeah. I mean, but that's that's another thing that's sort of dystopian about it too, right? Is the idea that, you know, here you have one of nature's greatest miracles, this like massive chasm that exists naturally formed out in the middle of nowhere. And what was man's idea to, to, uh, what was their contribution to it? Let's put this like gaudy casino. On yeah. You've <laughs> got to encroach upon one of the last bastions of peace and nature with yeah. <laughs> this uh, just dense cityscape with bright lights and yeah. So ridiculous, <laughs> but yeah, I, I can see. But it also sounds right that. because yeah. I, I, if you told me that Vegas decided that that's what they wanted to do, I'd believe it. <laughs> yeah, I believe it too. Uh, all right. Well, do you have any recommendations for people that have that have read this and want to read something like it, or you know, just any general recommendations? Mm, I've got. I think I've I've got quite a few. Um, mm. So I'll try to go through them quickly. But one of them is Counterfeit Girl by Peter Milligan and Rufus Daglo. So Rufus Daglow did one of the sequences in Maddie and Counterfeit Girl is a 2000 AD comic. It's kind of this black comedy existentialist cyberpunk story about identity, which is a, one of Peter Milligan's pet themes. But I, I guess I just thought of that one because Rufus Daglow worked on both comics and it's another cyberpunk type of story. Um, so I, I picked that one. Another one that I would pick, this is going to sound funny, but Deathlock by Joe Casey, Leonardo Manco, and Eric Canetti. <laughs> it's a Marvel series featuring their version of the Deathlock character. But the reason why I thought of that one is because it's just got that I idea of a, a human mind transplanted into a cyborg body. And so it's not quite mm. the same thing as like, remote controlled drone people but the idea of a a person who gets stuck in this cyborg soldier machine body being on the run and trying to figure out what's going on uh i feel like there are certain elements in there dealing with technology and uh the privatization of war that kind of are similar to something that you'd see in the world of maddie mm. Another thing I thought of, this is 
this isn't science fiction at all, but it's Road to Perdition by Max Allen Collins and Richard Pierce Rayner. There was also a great movie based on that comic uh, starring Tom Hanks, I think directed by Sam Mendes. But Road to Perdition, I thought of that because it's a road trip kind of movie where you have an adult who's also a lethal uh, assassin traveling with a little kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you like that aspect of Maddie, definitely you should check out Road to Perdition. Another one. Yeah. Another recommendation. It's just mainly because of the artwork and the look of the world. But if you like just the kind of cyberpunk cityscapes and science fiction trappings uh, of Maddie, I was thinking of Rye, the Valiant comic by Matt Mm -hmm. Kint and Clayton Mm -hmm. Crane. Yeah, so yeah. this is the Rye from the Valiant relaunch back in like the mid 2010s or early 2010s. I forget exactly what year. Probably around like 10 or 8 years now. But yeah, that comic with Clayton Crane's art has some awesome futuristic cityscapes and it's it's got great vibes. It's the kind of comic that you can listen to synthwave music to. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, the last thing that I would recommend, it's not a book, although I think there are books and comics based on the property, but it's a video game. I'm thinking of Deus Ex and the video games, Deus Ex, Human Revolution, and then Mankind Divided. Those are cyberpunk games where you play a cybernetically augmented uh, operative who goes on these missions for essentially for a corporation but there's like a lot more to the story um without getting too much into it 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 does deal with things like conspiracy theories and a lot of social dystopian concepts Mm. but if you like those ideas deus ex is probably the kind of story that uh, approaches those things with the more i guess pessimistic view so it, it doesn't i don't think i'm spoiling it by saying it lacks the uplifting optimism of maddie but if you want to check out something with the flip side to to the brightness check out deus x the video games huh i thought you were gonna say cyberpunk because it's in the title (laughs) yeah that probably would be but i actually haven't played it myself so okay okay. it is it is on my radar though i do want to check that out Mm. someday someday i'll get to it exactly me too me too if you do you have any more recommendations or no i'm waiting for yours now man yeah what you got okay uh i had a few that i came up with while i was watching or while we were talking uh initially the only thing that i really had was probably uh the other duncan jones films that he had worked on so i did like moon in spite of the fact that kevin spacey was in it but i don't necessarily (laughs) blame duncan jones for that he probably didn't know that kevin spacey was a monster <laughs> but yeah if it makes you feel any better you don't ever have to see him um, <laughs> hey they should just redub his voice <laughs> they should or if you're watching at home every time the the ai talks you pause it and you just read the subtitles so it's your own voice <laughs> there we go then you don't feel any guilt for it <laughs> Um, the one thing that I thought of was The New World by Ailescott and Trad Moore. Mm. Uh, that's the one that I had mentioned where it's essentially Ailescott doing his version of a 
dystopian future. There, there is elements of it that include bounty hunters and people going on the run from an oppressive government. But hey, <laughs> you know, I guess it's uh, spiritually in line with what was going on with Maddie, right? <laughs> and Tradmore's art is pretty fantastic. So seeing seeing the idea of a dystopian cyberpunk future presented as this bubblegum pop sort of uh you know bubblegum bubble pop uh uh just backdrop is a pretty interesting way to present it because it's it's almost like the idea of it is the thing about cyberpunk is it's usually all dreary and black and people are again despite the fact that they're living in the future they're all pretty miserable even though they have all this technology but the thing about uh uh the new world that makes it interesting is they're in the future they have all this technology but like people are so enthralled by their technology that that's the thing that makes that future scary you know mm. that that's pretty they, believable too yeah it's 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 Ailescott is a guy who I feel like he put his finger on the pulse of like TikTok culture and saw <laughs> what was going to happen if people continued to just completely buy into that. And he showed us what that future was like, where people are just super in love with how great, you know, their technology is without realizing just how awful it really is. But for us, the reader, it's like, it looks nice and the colors are really bright, but this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yeah. Uh, the other comic that I was thinking of was uh, Hawkeye by Jeff Lemire and Ramon Perez. Oh. It was, it, yeah, I don't know why this my, Maddie made me think of that. Well, okay, that's not true. I think the one thing that made me think of it was just the fact that it's a story about Hawkeye and Kate Bishop rescuing these mm. these kids these kids with special powers and yeah just they end up you know going on this adventure where they try to rescue these three kids that end up living with them for a brief period of time um and they try to rescue these kids from essentially what is an evil organization it's hydra so yeah but you know it's i thought that was something that had similar vibes as Maddie. That was such um, a good comic. It was really good. Uh, like Jeff Lemire is pretty good. Is, is not pretty good. He's really good, but some of his more mainstream stuff is hit or miss sometimes. His big two stuff. Was, yeah, his big two stuff exactly. But that Hawkeye was good. Actually, speaking of sure. Jeff Lemire, you know that comic he did with Gabriel Walta for TKO Sentient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that last year. Yeah, I was wondering. Since you were talking about the Duncan Jones movie with the AI, do you think that uh -huh. Sentient has some similarities there? Because Sentient is a story where the AI is taking care of these kids after their parents yeah. have been killed. And like the whole time, I felt like I was just waiting for the shooter drop in this AI to like turn the tables and, and like be revealed as some mm -hmm. kind of monster. But it, it turns out the, the AI in Sentient was. You know, trying genuinely to trying to kids. take care of these kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what you reminded You're me right. of. You're right. Like I do think that that's very similar to 
you know, again, to the idea of technology can be this scary thing, but sometimes, sometimes it can be a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we forget that. Yeah, it's easy to forget. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other comic that I was thinking of was Bri- uh, The Private Eye by Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin. Mm. And I think that's mostly just, it's very much like the new world in that it's Marcos Martins and Brian K. Vaughn's vision of their version of a dystopian future. And it's also a, a future where if you look at the natural progression of the internet and just saw how that is going to end up ruining people, <laughs> that's that's what that future looks like, right? Yeah, that comic was quite prescient. Yeah, because... I don't know. I feel uh, back to what I was saying earlier, like a, a lot of dystopian cyberpunk stories tend to focus on the more like practical tech that existed in like the eighties. So you get, uh, you know, food, you know, artificial food simulators or, um, you know, flying cars, stuff like that. Right. That's, yeah. that's generally the kind of technology that you have, but it sort of ignores the, real world technology that we do have and what that looks like moving forward Mm. so it made sense that writers like brian k vaughn and nails cott looked at the direction that our actual technology was going and decided well i'm going to make a future a dystopian cyberpunk future but based on the stuff that we do have and what that's going to look like when that turns to crap yeah (laughs) So, yeah. All right. All right. Very good. Well, if there's nothing else, uh, if you're listening to us, uh, you know, and want to contribute to the conversation, please hit us up on Between the Gutters on Instagram, or you can thread at us or DM us. <laughs> you can also... Uh, you know, hit us up on our email at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. You can also X, X tweet at us, tweet X at us, <laughs> whatever you call it. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, we, we had a lot to say about the just terribleness of corporations in this episode. And I think it's just really important to point out that even though corporations are bad, not our masters over at Amazon who, if you give us a billion dollars, we'll totally chill for you. <laughs> Other corporations are bad. <laughs> Daddy Bezos is wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, next week, I believe we are taking a bye week because Albert is doing some traveling. You going to check out any comic shops while you're out and about, Albert? I think I will. I, I it hadn't occurred to me uh, prior as I was making my plans, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know what? I'm going to have uh, quite a quite a, quite a a lot of time on my hands, so I might as well go check it out. Nice. Looking forward to it. But mm-hmm. I might even post some pictures. Excellent. Excellent. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be taking a bye week next week, but the week after that, we shall return and we will be continuing with our deadly class read through with volume nine. Thanks for Sounds listening, good. everybody. We will catch you later. Peace. Bye bye. <laughs>